everybody, and welcome to The Common Good. Tonight, we have a very inspiring conversation about young game changers who make up Generation Z. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge a few honorables and familiar faces in the audience. Um, we always are welcoming Bernard Schwartz from our Honorary Advisory Board. Um, some of our VIPs, past speakers and hosts, including Ernie Nemzer, Jill Iskell, Sally Menard, Jonathan Barnett, David Avital, David Kemp, Kim Tay Powell, and Sybil Shanewald. Um, we are always happy to have members of the press, and today uh, we're welcoming Anne-Marie Cunningham. And I also want to give a shout out to our terrific staff, um, Jasmine Nunez, Teller, Rivietzo, and also welcoming today for the first time, Denise Barker. So welcome to you. And tonight we get to discuss the impact of Generation Z. I, these are the young people born between 1997 and 2012. They seem very young to me. <laughs> but they've come of age at a moment of division and disinformation. They've already borne witness to the enormous destructive power of the war in Ukraine and its possible spread beyond those borders. They've seen markets hit new heights and an economic shutdown caused by a once in a 100 years global pandemic. They've got a fear for the future of the planet's ecosystem that sustains all life on, on our globe. And many, many social upheavals and moments of outrage with steps both forwards and back. This generation is taking their fear and turning it into action. I'm so proud of them. Organizing around issues that impact their daily lives from gun control to climate change to racial justice. They are our future and they are not afraid to disrupt the status quo. So as we try each time we meet at the Common Good, we've got the perfect panel to discuss this topic. First, please welcome John De La Volpe, the Director of Polling at Harvard University, where he has steered polling initiatives for the last 20 years. He's also the founder and CEO of Social Sphere, a firm that deals with public opinion research and consulting. In 2020, he took a break from those roles to act as the Strategic Communications Advisor for the Biden-Harris campaign with the goal of engaging younger voters. Della Volpe's new book, Fight, offers the definitive account of America's next great generation, and we urge you to buy it. Get a copy. John, it's been a long time, but it is so great to have you back at The Common Good. It's great to see you, Patricia, and thanks to everyone for, for joining us uh, this afternoon, this evening. I'm just excited to kind of uh, to, to share the insights and the enthusiasm of our Gen Z participants. So uh, and we're and we're gonna and we're gonna get right to them. Please meet Santiago Mayer. Santiago is a political strategist with a great backstory apparently and a gift for the digital sphere. He attracted 140,000 followers on Twitter and hundreds of millions of viewers uh, views across multiple platforms. That's pretty good already. But he's also the executive director of Voters of Tomorrow, a youth voting organization started by Santiago in December 2019. Hi, Santiago. Welcome. Nice to meet you. Hi, very nice to meet you. And thank you for having me. Thank you. And we are delighted to have Jingjing Shen with us. Jingjing is a junior at Harvard College studying chemistry and government. I have a feeling she's a, 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 a genius that uh, we, we need to, to hear from who served as the chair of the Harvard Public Opinion Project. Her interest in politics was first sparked in high school through her activism against gun violence 
and to support mental health initiatives. Jing Jing, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Patricia. Pleasure to join everyone tonight. And to help lead the conversation, I'm really thrilled to have another TCG returnee, David Burstein, CEO and co-founder of Run for America, who has helped many young people run for office. He's an author, a director, and he received a 2009 Do Something Award for his campaign efforts. But most importantly, he's emerged as an authority on millennials who has consulted with numerous organizations and companies on how to understand and engage millennials. Oh, that older generation, millennials. David, thank you so much for joining us. And now it's my pleasure to pass this conversation over to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Patricia. Um, and thanks to everyone who's here with us. And thanks to John and Santiago and Jingjing. We're really, I'm super excited to have this conversation. Uh, I've known John for a long, long time. Um, and we, we had many a conversation about millennials. And um, now, now it's time for millennials to move out, move out of the way uh, and <laughs> on to Gen Z. So um, I, I'm excited. I interviewed John when I wrote my book about millennials. And so I'm excited to be here uh, passing the torch as you will in this conversation. Um, so we have a lot to get to. Um, and, uh, and so I guess, I guess we'll just kind of get going. And you know, I'm going to switch between uh, all, all three of you um, kind of as we go through, go through. So Jing Jing and Santiago, you know, John, feel free to jump in uh, whenever necessary. And, and uh, we're excited to get to all of your questions in just a little bit. Um, so John, I wanna start with you. Can, you. can you just maybe first talk about, you know, obviously having written so much about millennials and your focus being on young people, you were always gonna write a book about Gen Z. Um, so I don't need to ask you why you wrote the book, but can you, can you talk maybe a little bit about what was the most surprising thing you learned uh, you know, as you went through the book, you know, as you started writing it? Um, was there something that, that really changed or, or something that really became really noticeable in your perception of Gen Z as, as you got deeper into the project? Yeah, thanks, David. Um, again, thanks everybody um, for being with us tonight. And as Patricia said, we're talking about Gen Z, 70 million Americans, roughly between the ages of like middle school age, in, in their early to mid twenties, launching their, their, their careers and their uh, kind of post education lives. It's the 70 million, it's the most educated, it's the most diverse generation in, in our history. And what really struck me, David, um, as kind of in the first phase of this is, as you said, I've been conducting research with, with younger people for 20 years. And in the summer of 2017, and specifically in the summer of 2018, as the semester ends at Harvard, I typically go on the road and, and talk to groups of people, small, medium, and large. And the answers to the same question I've been asking for 20 years changed, which is kind of what are the common threads um, among the people in my room here, essentially the people of your generation, and what don't people like me understand? And the tone, the tenor, the shape of those conversations were really, really startling um, as I was getting to this. And what I learned, uh, David, was uh, I heard multiple versions of this and younger people would say, you know, the way in which you think about taxes and paying bills and your finances and your portfolios, that's the way we think about living and dying every time we walk into a room like this, you know, which was like a, a classroom in a, in a college or university, you know, the fear um, was real. And that uh, began to kind of develop and heighten um, uh, the, the levels of concerns, the more I had those kinds of conversations. So that was 
honestly, as much time as I spend around young people, that was one of the earliest surprises or shockers, the extent to which people felt this pain and this, and this fear. Um, and I'll just, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll stop right there, but it transcended, David, everything. It transcended gender and race and socioeconomic factors and, and where we were in the country. It was just something that was like on the shoulders of so many of the young people that we talked about. Yeah, I think, I mean, that would, to me, reading your book, that was, I think, one of the most interesting points is, is that shift. And I mean, I'm wondering, um, you know, John and, and Jingjing and Santiago would love, love to hear your take on this as well. Um, you know, you talk in the book about some of the big events that I think shape that mentality. Um, because, you know, I, I think one of the things that's interesting about millennials is that we had these big, all these big moments of systems working well and systems working not well. But for Gen Z, it's been a little bit of a different story. So, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about some of those events that have had such a big impact and how you see them, how you see those things having actually shaped the generation. Great, thanks. Yeah, because that's what a generation is, right? It's a group of people having this collective experience coming, coming of age. And I argue in the book that there are, there are five very significant events. Um, you know, um, the first of which I think is, is actually Occupy Wall Street. A lot of people don't think of that. Very, really no one thinks about that as, as a Gen Z event, right? Occupy Wall Street was, was a protest developed by a member of the silent generation gifted to millennials. But what was interesting about that, David, is as the older members of Gen Z were coming of age, right, 12, 13, 14 years old, 15 years old, entering high school, they, the, their first entry point into politics was about basically the, the moral choices related to capitalism, right, and the, the, the disconnect between the one and the 99% and, um, concerns about inequality and access to, to education, housing, et cetera. So, so that is one thing that certainly has shaped, I think, how they think about things. The second thing, obviously, is whether you're Republican or Democrat, whoever was going to follow Barack Obama, right, was going to have a, a significant impact shaping the values of this generation, right? And for me, we've talked many times about like what gets someone to vote, a younger person. It's seeing the tangible nature of a, a, a political engagement. And what younger people saw was walls go up, people not coming into this country and a variety of other of other significant events around around Trump and, and, and 2017 beyond. Second event, the third event, series of events, I think, were the, um, the combination of the October 1st um, uh, Mandalay Bay massacre, followed a few months after that with February 14th, four years ago, um, in the Parkland. And, and the combination of those two events with obviously um, uh, what Parkland students did in terms of organizing and empowering Everyone, members of their own community, wherever they were around the country, as well as older uh, Americans. That's a third event. Fourth event wouldn't happen without Parkland, which is Greta Thunberg's climate strike. You know, she was a, a, a very, very intelligent, a very frustrating young, young student in, uh, in Sweden who, who was trying to get the attention of her other classmates. And she took literally a page from the Parkland um, uh, playbook, you know, and said, if those students could take a, a day off of school and strike, you know, um, for uh, to cause attention to gun violence. Let me try the same thing. You know, a few months later, you know, she has touched most everybody, um, you know, over, through 100 countries around the globe. And the, the fifth event, um, of course, is, is our, was again inspired by, by a young 17 year old high school student with an iPhone who simply wanted to take her little cousin for dessert on uh, Memorial Day 2020. 
Instead, what she saw was a brutal murder of George Floyd. And not only was she, was she so brave to take that 10 minute video, but then she walked back to her apartment overlooking the crime scene and she just spoke you know, for several, several minutes, close to an hour about what she had just witnessed and streamed it on Facebook Live. So the whole world didn't have a chance to not see that, right? We couldn't, we couldn't choose to turn our heads any longer. We had to confront that. So those are like the big five moments that I think have kind of shaped. None of those moments are positive. Right. None of those moments, you know, were really America at our best, to be honest with you. And I think that's kind of the underlying current of, um, of who people are. Thanks, John. I think that's I think that's a really great framing. And maybe maybe actually it'll be interesting, Santiago and Jingjing, maybe you guys can talk a little bit about were there any of those any particular events John mentioned or something else that really, you know, stuck with you or had a really big impact for you and would love to hear a little bit about kind of how how this, you know, how, how what John's saying, how, how it all resonates with you, and if there are other kind of okay, issues yeah. you think are important, uh, important for us to understand. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest point, at least in my experience, has been the, but the Parkland shooting and the movement after that, combined with the overall political environment after the election of Donald Trump. And I, I've talked about this length in other places, but my introduction to politics was moving to the United States during the Muslim ban and seeing the way that was affecting people and the way that young people didn't really have the tools to talk about that. So seeing that sort of hatred guiding policy was something that really illuminated Gen Z in a lot of different senses and also seeing just the inaction that was being taken in other places. There was a lot of action being taken in places where it didn't matter and zero action being taken in place where it did. And when you kind of combine that with the overall sense of dread that our generation has experienced, and Tersha and John did a very good job in summarizing that. Our generation goes from 97 to 2012. We've seen the September 11 attacks. We've seen a the we've seen countless school shootings. We've seen two economic recessions, a pandemic. Nothing has been positive. Millennials saw both America at its best and America at its worst. Gen Z has only experienced the worst part of it, and we have not even reached the age that many millennials had when America went down. And that has really just been sort of a guiding principle for Gen Z activists, and that is trying to work to make sure that we're the last generation that has to experience all of that, or at least minimize the impact for future generations. So I'm, I'm sure Jing Jing will have some more to add, but that is at least in my experience what I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Santiago um, and David for the question. I think, as you noted, Santiago, the pivotal decade during which Gen Z has come of age has really been jam-packed with so many different seminal events, many of them taking the form of a crisis. So we had 9-11, uh, the era of school shootings, the climate challenges of climate change coming to the fore. And each of, this, each of these concerns just adds another layer of worry to what's on Gen Zers' daily minds. And I believe that what's important to keep in mind is that a lot of these questions of our collective future as a country, as a global society 
also take on a very personal force for many young people. And specifically, we can witness this in the numbers surrounding mental health, especially recently, not just following the coronavirus pandemic, but also even in the years leading up to it, an increased worry surrounding access to mental health, if it mental health care, if it is needed, the stigma surrounding um, this sort of well-being and broader questions of being able to feel comfortable and satisfied in one's life. In the poll that we conduct uh, at Harvard, the Harvard Youth Poll um, that surveys Gen Zers as well as the beginning cohort of millennials, um, 18 to 29 year old young adults across the nation, we pick up on half of young people who say that in the last several days they felt down depressed or hopeless, which is really, really striking. Despite the crises though, and the, the personal toll that these have exacted on young people's lives, what's really profound to me personally as well is Gen Z's sense of commitment to a better future, but also to each other. And there's this willingness to fight to bring about that brighter tomorrow. The group that John leads and that I chaired in uh, 2021, the Harvard Public Opinion Project, conducted some focus groups with high schoolers uh, virtually during the fall of 2020. And this involves students from high schools all across the country. But one Alabama student let us know that in her words, quote, our generation wants to make change, wants to make things better for people. So there was clearly a recognition of the obstacles and very lofty objectives that we have ahead of us, but this really clear recognition as well that we're willing to do what it takes to ensure that no one is left behind in this effort to improve the systems around us, to advocate for causes that matter, and to continue pursuing a better future for everyone. Thank you so much for that, Jingjing. I think that's, and I, and I want to get to uh, some of the stuff that you were talking about, mental health, because I think it's really, really important. And one of the really think, striking things about this generation that people really need to understand. Um, but I also want to pick up on something that you just said there and, and kind of turn it to John. You know, I think one of the things that's really striking about this generation is this idea, I mean, it's in your title of the book, Fight, right? This idea that the response to these kind of events and experiences has been this very unequivocal, you know, willingness to pick, pick right up and do whatever it takes. Um, and often with a sense of real justice to it. I'm wondering if you, you can just talk a little bit about how you're seeing that play out and what you think that will look like going forward, particularly as we look ahead to uh, the next election cycle and, and political activism and beyond. Yeah, thanks, David. And, and I think this is one of, the, one of the places where there are some, some differences emerge actually between the millennials and, and Zoomers or Zoomers, Gen Z. Um, I think that, that there's a common set of values, a shared set of values that both generations hold. Um, there's not a lot of daylight in, in, in most of the questions we ask in the surveys between folks in their teens, 20s, and 30s. There are some few, but not a lot. And now we're dealing, by the way, right, with 40% of voters, okay, are right. of these two generations um, and have a tremendous impact 
um, in the election. And one of the, the differences that like, I think Zoomers have, the ur have, have an urgency, um, an urgency to action um, and using, I think every single tool available. What made the, the, the millennials so special, I think, is their ability to, to, um, you know, to think outside the box and to use their entrepreneurship for the use of technology and social media to solve those problems, oftentimes though from the outside. When we look at the effect that they've had in politics relative to other generations, there's just far fewer in the traditional electoral process, far fewer members of Congress today in their 30s than when baby boomers were in their 30s. I think it's like only half as many. We just had our first uh, millennial elected to the United States Senate, right, in Georgia, John Ossoff. So, so in the traditional political sense, millennials um, haven't had the, the, the impact that the boomers have had. What's different though about Zoomers is, again, they're doing, they're both volunteering, they're organizing, they're protesting, but they're voting in record numbers. In 2018, a midterm election, and there was a, a, a direct line from February 14th to I think the election was November 8th, 2018. Um, and we found a correlation that the more anxiety you held, the more likely you were to vote in that election. Okay, so I'm not a mental health expert, right? But um, about one, one way in which younger people could to check something off your list, right? To make them feel a little bit better was to activate, you know, kind of that political, that you use that political act to, to try to make a tangible difference. That led to record turnout um, and essentially kind of double the turnout for the 2014 election, which was the average of the last three decades worth of elections. So when baby boomers, when Gen Xers and when millennials were, were in their early twenties, they voted about half the rate in midterm elections as this generation. Fast forward just a couple of years, you asked me earlier about, about some things that I was surprised about. One thing, David, I was surprised about is based upon the turnout, I was expecting like record numbers in the Democratic primary, like expect huge, huge numbers. We saw good numbers in Iowa in the caucus, you know, where youth turnout increased. That was about it. You know, in most of those other states, it was relatively flat. But, mm. but by November, um, we saw, again, record turnout. I still think many more should turn out, okay? But for the first time in American history, first time, we had a majority of young people vote. Young people on college campuses were 20% more likely to vote. So they were, you know, in the 60% plus range, which is essentially at the, at the number where all Americans are. And they had such an impact on the election. Most folks don't maybe appreciate that, that Donald Trump won the votes of everybody over the age of 40. You know, and it was younger people in Arizona, in Georgia, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, people in their 20s, um, specifically Zoomers, um, double digit average a 20 point margin for Biden over Trump in those places. Millennials have held on to those progressive values and, and carried um, the vote in those states by about a 10 point margin. That's what carried those five states for, for, uh, for Biden. That's what carried the Senate in Georgia. And now we have uh, younger people being a key, key block in, in making 10 seats go from red to blue in 18 and, and electing a, a, a president and well as, as, as a Democratic Senate. So 
so I, I think I think I think you know I think this is really important, but, but this point you're making, John, because I think we, you know, while millennials have been super engaged, this is an even more active and engaged generation, significantly so, which I think is really important and really encouraging, and I think helps dispel this myth um, that young people or generations, which which I've heard for a long time, don't participate, um, because we're certainly not seeing that to be the case. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, just just share a little bit because I know you do a lot of polling on this. What are your insights as we head into the midterms about you know, what we're seeing from Gen Z participation and, and kind of how are they feeling about Biden? And, and obviously, you know, uh, there are a lot of mixed, mixed feelings about how Biden's doing. Where, where are they kind of falling? Um, what do you expect in the fall? It's a, yeah, it's a great, uh, really great question. And, you know, and also, sorry, if I can add one other thing in there, how do you expect them to participate in primaries um, for, for if at all, in, in, you know, if in any kind of significant way uh, for, for these, these races? Yeah, so the, the 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 very focus of of the Harvard work going back 21 years, right, is to understand what turns people out to vote, right? Increasing levels of, of, of civic engagement. So many more people volunteer than vote. So they're clearly not apathetic. They just didn't see, you know, real, real um, uh, the tangible effects as I say of voting. I have seen no indication, and in, in the Harvard polling or any other polling that I'm doing, that um, young people are any less likely to vote in these midterms. Than in 2018. Okay. A lot of the conventional wisdom says young people aren't excited, they're not enthusiastic. That may be true, that is true, because they're turning away from politics, David, to protect their mental health. Okay. They're not watching, but very few of us are watching as much, you know, cable news and checking out the political websites as we as as we used to. But I've seen no indication in the last Harvard poll that was released um, in, in early December indicates that they're kind of on track to meet that that number in 18, uh, that, the, that we had in 18. Um, and I expect that to continue. That's part one. Now, the question though, is will, will Democrats hold the advantage that they held in 18, right? So it's two factors here. In, in 2018, um, uh, Democratic uh, votes for Congress, about 66 to almost 70% uh, of, of people under 30 voted for Democrats. I think that's less likely to happen. The fact that Joe Biden did as well, he did better than any president, presidential candidate since Obama in 08, in terms of his mileage, it was 60%. So although I think you'll see about the same number of people participate, the margin between Democrats and Republicans among this generation, I think will be, will be tighter, unless, unless, you know, frankly, more Democrats understand what we're talking about tonight and, and use their resources to kind of target them and talk to them. Um, et cetera. That's the key. Um, we see clearly, David, you know, that when, when younger people are targeted, right, when they're when, not just with, with media, but when they're really kind of empowered, that's when people turn out to vote, right? So they have the ability and they could vote in these primaries. Um, but, you know, the reason they didn't vote in the 2020 primaries is because most people wrote, wrote them off to being Bernie Sanders supporters, Right, limited resources, and they just tend to focus on them, take them for granted. Well, you know what? Bernie Sanders did great with younger people, but he did much less well in, in 20 than he did in 16, much less well. You know, and there are about the other half of votes. He got about half of the uh, young, uh, younger votes, and the other half were dispersed among all their other candidates. So it's just a question of making this a priority, making this a focus, and appreciating the fact that they've already changed the country. Right, they've already made a significant impact, not just on issues, but in, on elections as well. I think that's really well said. And if I, think I can add something super quick, I just want to highlight a point that John just made, and that is when young people are targeted, they turn out to vote. 
And in our own research with Versus Tomorrow, we have seen something that I think kind of just makes that point true. We polled asking voters under 24 whether they would be more or less likely to vote if the White House created what we call a White House Youth Advisory Council, which is literally just convening young people to the White House to tell the president and administration about the things that worry them. And within that polling, we saw that 36% of voters, 50, I'm sorry, 50% of voters would be more likely to vote if that was instituted. 36% would be more likely to vote for Democrats if that was instituted. So just wanted to highlight that point because what Jenna's saying, when people talk to young voters and when people listen to them, they're a lot more likely to not just vote, but vote for the people who are doing the listening. Santiago, I think that's as far as fun and what, and what John said. About, I mean, we, we've known this about young people now consistently for, for for over 20 years, since probably since John started doing this research. Since we were, since I was young, yeah. <laughs> since, since, since we've been telling politicians this, and it's the number, if anyone listening here, I think it's one of the number one things to take away from this conversation. If you really, you know, young people really show up. Um, if they are, you know, if they are targeted, and and that's historically been one of the big challenges. I I, I did want to turn it over to you, Santiago, just to tell us a little bit about Voters for Tomorrow. You've built a big social media following. You have a pretty robust organization, and and maybe you can share with us, you know, some of the things that you guys are doing to turn folks out for for the midterms and beyond, and and also maybe if you can share with us some of the top issues or or you know things that are really you're seeing really pop among uh, among Gen Z voters right now. For sure, yeah. So like I said earlier, I moved to the US in 2017 in the middle of the I I had followed politics in Mexico when I lived there and did a lot of MUN in middle school. And I was really passionate about international politics. And when I moved here, the Muslim ban was top of mind just because I was seeing a lot of people my age who were being denied entry just because of the country they were coming from. So I was very interested in that. I was trying to talk to that with people in my classes and with my teachers. And I realized that a lot of people my age didn't have the knowledge nor the tools to really have those conversations. So I, vented, I started venting on Twitter. I took the social media to share my frustration. And for one reason or another, I still really can't explain it. People liked what they saw in those conversations and started following me. And as we headed into the 2020 elections, I really decided to tap into that audience and do something with it to help solve the problem. And I started Voters for Tomorrow. So what we do is kind of summarized by three words, and that is educate, engage, and represent. We want to make sure that Gen Z voters are educated about the topics. We want to make sure that they are engaged in politics and government. We want to make sure that they are represented and that their voices are being listened to. There's the tobacco lobby, there is a gun lobby, there's a pharma lobby, there's really not a young person lobby. So we're working hard to make sure that our voices are in the room where decisions are being made and that politicians keep us in mind when they're when they're talking about the not only talking about the issues, but taking action on these issues. A lot of what we've been doing over the past few months has been focusing a lot on the engagement part of it because our theory of change is that young voters are more likely to vote when they are already part of the political process. And it doesn't have to be a political action to make them part of it. It just has to be a civic action. So we've seen a lot of issues across the country specifically targeting young people. We've seen the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida. We have seen book bans across the country and we have been really focused on combating those and bringing young people into the fight against them. So we have had book distributions in high schools in Texas and Virginia. We have organized walkouts and protests in Florida to make sure that politicians know that Gen Z is really opposed to what they're doing. 
And aside from that, we have been running a really robust digital operation to make sure that every young voter can not only know what is happening, but take action and become part of the fight. I'm flagging John's bucket here to make sure that all of this is defeated as we head into the election. Thank you. And thank you, Santiago, for all the amazing work that you're doing. It really, uh, it's, it's, I'm sure it's going to be super critical to actually seeing what happens uh, in the fall. Um, Okay, I want to turn over to you, Jingjing, Jing, to talk a little bit more about mental health, and, and also, you know, John would love your perspective on this as well, because this, the stats in the book are pretty overwhelming, and Jingjing Jing spoke to them a little bit. Um, but I just, I, you know, I, I, you alluded to it a little bit before, Jingjing, Jing, but I, I would love for you maybe to illuminate for folks, um, where do you see this, this mental health crisis? And, and, and really, you know, the, the, the Surgeon General, uh, I believe, referred to it as a mental health uh, epidemic uh, that is nowhere more prominent than it is among this generation. Uh, where do you see that headed? And what are the tools or interventions that you feel like uh, we really need to be working on and, and bringing to bear to actually change the trajectory for this generation? Yeah, thanks a lot for the question. I think it's a really important one and something that really surprised a lot of us um, at the Public Opinion Project when we first started asking our um, respondent base, that group of 18 to 29 year old Americans about their mental health experiences. Um, we were struck by the numbers in the spring of 2021 that around half of young people had been struggling with um, experiencing symptoms that resembled uh, those of depression and a fraction around 28% of youth had struggled with feelings of self-harm or suicide, which is really tough to, to see. Um, but even more shocking was that several months later, um, around November of 2021, when we posed the same set of questions to our young Americans, those numbers didn't really budge. And so at a different point in the pandemic, you still have these very alarming stats to grapple with. In addition to that, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, so just around March, 2020, um, in asking young Americans if, they'd be worried about accessing mental health care at all. We found something like 40% of youth agreed with that sentiment um, across partisan lines. So prior to this health crisis, this public health crisis, which has really elevated the importance of mental health along with physical health, as well as broader well-being in many people's minds, mental health was already an issue that was emerging as one of concern. And as the pandemic drags on into its third year and we see semblances of returning back to normal along with increased worry about new variants and such, it's hard to say where exactly this crisis currently ongoing is poised to um, shift to. However, what is undeniable is that young people recognize the value and critical need for mental health and especially mental health supports. So we've witnessed the toll that not just the COVID-19 pandemic, but other elements of daily life for young people have had on their 
psychological well-being. These include um, the daily worries that we've talked about so far from economic insecurity and the stresses of finding a job and keeping a job to school and work more generally on a day-to-day -day basis. You have the potentially toxic environments that can come about on social media or in the news regarding politics, um, the ongoing war in Ukraine, these distressing updates that never really seem to cease in our ever connected, ever online world. And finally, the, the social comparisons that social media, as well as the competitive spaces that we inhabit in our pursuits of new jobs, our identities, families, all of that can invite additional stressors. And considering all of that in sum, there's a lot that young people have to contend with in addition to um, just growing up. So that's going to be a challenge. And our spring 2022 survey is not in yet, but when that comes around in a couple months, we'll be able to look at those numbers and see how the last several months with this increased focus, especially by the Surgeon General, as well as other health officials on mental health, we'll see if that has transformed anything. But beyond our leadership, it's also apparent that young people really find faith in closer and more community-based uh, supports. So in, in conversations we posted through focus groups with young college students, high schoolers, even just our peers uh, at the university, we hear a lot about the very profound impacts that just having someone in your social circle who you can turn to during a tough time can have on making you feel less alone. And we know loneliness is a really problematic issue of our time. Um, but anecdotally, as a crisis text line volunteer, I get to hear about this um, every time I sign up for a shift and meet a texter who's feeling emotional distress, unsure of what to do. And yet by identifying ways and coping skills to feel better, whether it be something as simple as going outside for a walk, getting some sleep, prioritizing those straightforward but very much necessary aspects of self-care and well-being, that can make a difference. Knowing someone who you can turn to in a tough time is absolutely essential. And if we can foster that kind of awareness, willingness to talk about mental health, to open up about your story and not feel worried about the stigma, the um, openness of vulnerability, but also too, to know that even just taking care of yourself and helping take care of others is something that matters and just the same, you matter. So it is a looming crisis. It is something that is so deep and affects many of us, but that kind of support and community assistance we can provide to each other, we can each chip in as individuals to make that happen. Amazing, thank you, Jing Jing. Uh, I think I think it's a really important piece of this, uh, and, and appreciate you sharing so profoundly on on the challenges. Um, we're gonna it just in, I mean I have one more question for John, and then um, 
uh, we, Patricia is going to help me field Q and A because a few people have already sent questions to her. But if you do have questions, um, just raise your hand, and uh, we'll we'll start getting to you. And we'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, John, I wanted to ask you. Just you know, we talked a little bit, obviously, about one of the myths. Uh, about you know, about young about young people and, and particularly this generation, uh, and dispel that around political participation. But I want to know if there are other important myths you think it's helpful to dispel that you kind of learned through this process. Yeah, I think that um, I think there are a couple. I think we all. I think we. I think we. I think we. I feel pretty good that we might have dispelled two big myths. Right. One is they don't vote. You know, and, and the other is I hope we dispel the fact that there are a bunch of snowflakes. Right. Because that we've proven that they're anything but they're the most resilient, um, I, I think, uh, generation I've, I've, I've had the chance uh, to meet. So those are a couple. Um, I also think there's a myth, certainly around in the media around Washington, that um, they're a bunch of, it's like a far left generation, right? And it's actually um, a center left generation. Every year, Every, every year, uh, according to all of the typology questions that we ask, we're seeing a shift towards progressivism uh, on every single issue, even things that start right of center, they're moving you know, center to center left. But uh, there is an openness and, and an interest in, in, in identifying solutions across the political spectrum. Only 39% of Zoomers, David, would call themselves liberal or leaning liberal. Only 39%, right? You know, and then you get a, a group of moderates and then a smaller group of, of conservatives. So that's another myth. Um, there's this other myth that because they, they don't believe in like American exceptionalism to the degree to which other generations do, that they don't like America. Again, I think we talked about the, especially Santiago and Jingjin talked about the environments in which they grew up in. They haven't found that moment, right? Where we felt would able be, be, when we come together as one. But so they're working to kind of improve America. So those are a couple of the other myths, and I think the last one is, um, and I talk a lot about this when I'm in when I'm in Washington. Is there this this degree to which people expect them, people expect Zoomers to to want to have like purity across? You know, if you're not for the Green New Deal, then we can't have a conversation with you. If you're not for 100 canceling 100 percent student debt, there's much more nuance in um, in pragmatism. I think. Uh, among the generation as, as a whole. And therefore we shouldn't be afraid to engage young people and sometimes uncomfortable things if we have a disagreement because ultimately they want to see progress um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of that vision. So those are just some of the other kind of myths I think I've confronted as I've been um, kind of sharing some of these stories, David. Great, thanks so much, John. Um, and uh, now we're gonna start going to Q&A and I want to um, uh, okay. So we have uh, a few. We have a few actually, David, um, that we, we're going to get to. But um, I want to start with one of our young people in the audience, Sanda Balaban. You have a question you want to present? I would love to. First of all, just want to thank all of the panelists. I run Youth Civic Learning Initiatives, and this is very resonant for me and uh, and and uh, music to my ears. So some of you touched upon this, but I'd love to hear more about what kinds of knowledge, skills, experiences, and values uh, the panelists feel are most helpful in and out of school, in high school specifically, in channeling Gen Z's activist inclinations into informed, engaged, ongoing citizenship, civic action, and voting. 
So what should we be doing in our schools to really capitalize on this appetite and interest? Because we know that we don't provide the on-ramps and the point of entry to the degree that we could and should. Great question. Who wants to take it? I think I can take that. Yeah, I mean, the biggest and most important thing is making sure that students understand that what they do make a makes a difference. And that is something that we've struggled with by not us as an organization or a generation, just us as a country in making sure that students see those opportunities in their classrooms. We keep seeing attacks to try and take politics out of the classroom when we should be putting politics inside the classroom. And that doesn't mean having teachers or professors voice their own opinions. It means providing the space for students to engage in these conversations and shape their own opinions to respectful debate. So there is a, this sense that the only pe young people that actually care about politics are those in MUN or in debate club. All the, yeah, the only people who care about politics are those who are going to go ahead and study policy. And that's simply not true. I think every single young person has political opinions. They just haven't found a way to voice them or an environment where they will feel comfortable voicing them. Yeah, I think, hey. I, I, yeah. Right, John. John, you're muted. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I gave a talk. I gave a talk a, a few years ago to several hundred, many, many hundred parents who uh, lost a child to suicide. And I talked about some of these, uh, some of these threats, these concerns, and, and, and the fear. And I had to talk about politics. I had to talk about um, President Trump and how he had changed so many things. And there were so many questions that people had um, as part of my presentation. And, at, and as I walked up the stage, I kind of was like sheepish. I, I was kind of like apologized for talking about like politics to this group. And um, the, 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 the lead organizer of the conference says, please don't ever apologize. Like we need to have this conversation. That's the problem. Right, that there's so much stress and anxiety about putting things, especially today, into the proper context, you know, that um, it stresses people out more. There's a direct correlation between the number of news alerts you get on your phone and how much anxiety you have, and some of the surveys that we take. Right, so just the ability to have a space where you can mm -hmm. ask questions and talk about politics um, is just critical. I think at every stage, frankly, uh, of education, I've had hundreds, probably thousands of conversations it almost never devolves into anything rancorous, right? Um, it's only about here are the problems, here are the, you know, the things that we're concerned about, here are the vulnerable populations that we want to protect. How do we best do that? So um, anyway, so that's what I'd say. Just don't ever be afraid of having those conversations. Yeah, I think that's spot on, John. Thank you. And thank you, Santiago. Um, Patricia, I can turn back to you for our next yeah, question. Yeah, I, I, first of all, I just want to tell you, this has been it's such a terrific conversation. It's so fresh. Uh, and so important, and um, really appreciate your all your comments. But um, we've got a couple of questions on the deck. David Kemp, do you want to ask your question, please? Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Patricia. Um, so I recall long ago that my generation, baby, <clears throat> the baby boomer generation, uh, was idealistic, uh, wanted change, protested, 
and um, what now, now we're all moving to Florida and voting for Trump. So, what <laughs> what's what, what do you see as the difference differences be, between baby boomer idealism and and Gen Z idealism, if it is idealism? Yeah. So, David, um, it. I think that there is some mythology to the degree to which an entire generation, uh, you know, kind of protested, et cetera. You know, so so um, clearly, baby boomers had a significant impact, you know, in, in in organizing around around Vietnam, et cetera. But it wasn't until um, there was a draft where where younger baby boomers in the '60s were actually opposed to the war, right? Um, and I learned through, uh, through the research that baby boomers as a generation always tended to be conservative and vote Republican, and that really hasn't changed. You know, baby boomers, white baby boomers, voted for Nixon and Ford and Reagan. They have really have never selected, never voted for any Democratic president, I think perhaps with the exception of like, you know, a landslide, you know, in 96. But this is a generation that is has been far more, you know, moderate to moderate conservative than um, than popular culture might otherwise um, tell us, um, and that that's continued. And the thing that I also learned through kind of just my investigation of these generations is that the values and the way in which younger uh, people have been voting throughout generations have kind of they've kind of stuck with that. Right. So, you know, white baby boomers have always been Republicans um, and they continue to be. Um, so my generation, Gen X, we've always been kind of 50, 50, 50. Um, we continue to be really the, the swing vote in American politics uh, in American politics today. We think about this country being divided 50, 50. It's it is, but it's also divided two thirds, one third, you know, two thirds of folks under 40 feel a certain way. Two folks, two thirds of the folks over fifty-five or sixty feel a certain way, you know, and um, and and that's where that's where that's where things are. I'm actually surprised to hear that, John. So um, baby boomers have always been predominantly Republican voters. I was surprised to see that. I was I was surprised to see that. But yes, um, the the Jimmy Carter narrowly won the youth vote in, in 1976 only because of, 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 of a young baby boomers of color. So white baby boomers have consistently through just about every single election, perhaps with the exception of like a landslide, you know, in 96, have always been Republican and no disrespect to baby boomers, right? But the other part of it that I learned, right, is that the culture that they were responding to was the culture created by the silent generation. You know, Woodstock, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the Beatles and the artists and John Lewis and all the folks that they were responding to, which it was important, were the older generation, right? The silent generation was bringing that culture that younger people were kind of responding to. They had a critical role, of course, in the 70s, you know, uh, ERA in Vietnam, et cetera. But as a generation, more center right than left, than, than center left, for sure. I, I'm curious if that has anything to do with um, Johnson's um, Great Society efforts, but um, I, I want to give a chance to get to some of these other questions uh, since we're, we we don't have that much time. Earl Nemser, yes, you're sir. next. 
I was wondering what Gen Z, how they feel about money. I'm a boomer and I was uh, uh, motivated by money in my career, as were a lot of my contemporaries. I would also like to know if you could sort of crystallize this into maybe three elements that you would use to distinguish Gen Zers from others, three bullet points that I can have as takeaways. I know the boomers, we lived through a lot also. We had wars, we had assassinations, we had killings, we had Harlem burning down. We had just about everything the Z generation is having probably in spades. Mm -hmm. So uh, as to David's point, I'm not sure I see that we've lived through anything anything different than the Gen Z as well. That, that, those are my yeah. questions. Earl, um, yeah, every generation has trauma. There was assassination, cities burning, war, et cetera. The difference, Earl, I believe, and we can ask Jing in Santiago, is you had that, but you also had communal moments where people came together. Mm -hmm. Woodstock, the man on the moon, I had the miracle on ice, coming together after the Challenger, September 12th. These young people, it was all, all these events were compacted in a short time without the benefit of seeing America at its best, you know? And so I think those are the things that make, that make this series of events um, just not any more or less challenging than any other series of events, but they didn't have the ability to see us come together kind of at our, at our, at our best. And the earliest moments, Earl, when younger people, like their first memories, Oftentimes, we saw 80% of their families lose 20% of the revenue of their of the net worth, right? Tens of millions lose their homes. They go to school and they've got the lockdown drills. I didn't know anybody who died of a drug overdose when I was in eighth grade. You know, um, you know, it's hard to have a conversation with any group of 12 people randomly selected where we don't see people who know of, of, of peers who have suicided or who have opioid addictions. I can't walk into a group of 10 African-American folks and not see six or seven or eight or all 10 of them know of someone who's been a victim of gun violence, you know, um, or, or a group of younger women and not hear sexual uh, assault concerns. So it's just much more tangible uh, at every level of, of society. And the phone makes means that you can never hide from it. It can never go away. So um, not taken away from any other generation, but this, those are some of the unique things. A couple of other things real quick. The best way to think, Earl, one of the big surprises, right, was this like this rejection I saw through our Harvard research of capitalism. Okay, it's not capitalism; it's the way in which capitalism is practiced. Okay, the more we show what the definition of capitalism is, the more support there is. But it's best explained to me. I talk about this uh, quite a bit in the book. Is younger people tell me they want a square deal, new deal, TR and FDR, right? They're looking for a version of capitalism that kind of levels the playing field a little bit in terms of monopolistic you know, things and also invest in some of the social infrastructure to help the more vulnerable, the less connected, right? So they're not socialists. That's kind of the way they're thinking about that. The definition, Earl, of money, they've seen so much loss you know, within their parents that they are far more driven by that definition of success and much more like the best life is, is really kind of focused on having a house, not having a lot of debt, being a community of loved ones, working for someone that makes you feel good. So um, you, those, are, those are great questions. I, should, I could write another book on that whole subject, but those are some of the quick insights. Thank you. Thank you.
And we've got two more on deck here um, in, in a short period of time. Let's go to Jonathan Barnett and then Sally Menard. I'm gonna follow up a little bit on the theme that Earl struck. Uh, there was a great line I remember that someone said, if you remember going to college in the 1960s or 1970s, you didn't. Um, uh, I did go then and I, rem I do remember. And what I remember distinctly is the country was coming apart. You were having political assassinations with RFK and Martin Luther King. You had the Democratic National Convention in 1968. You had Kent State in 1970. The place was coming apart at its seams. And the, I remember a conversation in which people defended government troops shooting students for expressing opinions. We are thankfully not at that state now. Um, I also remember the theme of what we differentiated. We thought we were different with turn on, tune in, and drop out mm -hmm. uh, was, uh, was the theme. The question for John or anybody else is whether you think that the, what this generation's uh, differing and defining characteristics are, will they survive uh, mortgages, having children, and having established careers? Uh, the, best, the best way to know how to answer that um, Jonathan is by looking at millennials, right? And they kind of came in with this optimism around Obama, et cetera. And they've essentially kind of held on to that in terms of they are re they have not become more conservative. They are the second most reliable um, values-based generation uh, that we have. The, the values are so important. Um, the name of the book was going to be something around values. And another one of these myths, and one of the biggest takeaways is if you're working with them, if you're mentoring them, you know, if you employ them, is this is not a transactional, transaction-based group of people. It's a values-based group of people. And those are the values I try to talk about around how they think about money and how they, and how they think about fairness and protecting people um, who are less fortunate, et cetera. So, so much of this is around values and they will be shaping the society over the next decades ahead around uh, these values. It means transformative change and how, we, how we, we live, how we vote, how we eat, um, all of those things. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, Sally Menard, love to hear from you. Just a quick follow up on John's observation that the baby boomers were primarily moving into conservatism rather than either center or center left. I'm just curious to know if you found a difference between women and men on that uh, variable. Um, there is a more distinct, a more distinct uh, gender gap, but still, uh, but you know, Donald Trump won the, the, the baby boomer vote uh, among white, again, race is a bigger factor than gender, among you know, white boomer females and white boomer males. So um, yeah, and, and, and here's the other interesting thing is like, there's like this, there was no generation gap, Sally, in 1999, 2000, we started this, so there's no gap. The older people, young people voted essentially the same way, 50-50. Now there's like a 30 point gap. And when I ask, when I ask in our surveys, like, do you have favorable impressions of following groups, Gen Z, millennials? Only 34% of baby boomers tell us in our surveys they have a favorable impression of Gen Z. Only 34%. So, so I'm not being critical of, of, of baby boomers, but there is this tension between 
baby boomers and younger people, they think they're snowflakes. They think, right? And they don't appreciate the fact that a baby boomer literally could mow grass or be a waiter or a waitress over the course of a summer, okay? Um, for their, and then afford a year of college tuition at a public or private university in America, right? That was accessible to them. They could work one summer, 13 weeks and get there. Obviously, Jing Jing and Santiago can't do the same thing. It takes them four years to do that, you know, to earn that. So I'm trying to put this generation to context so boomers can help, right? And to learn and to collaborate because the only way we're all collectively going to move the country forward is if all the generations understand each other, you know, and, and, and younger people can mentor up and us older folks can mentor down. And uh, that's what the, uh, these are why the, some of the bridges I'm trying to build here through this book. Well, that's terrific, John. Thanks. We all need to read the book. <laughs> yes, thank you. We certainly do need to read the book. Um, and you've done a fantastic job, David and John and Santiago and Jen, Jing Jing. And I just wanted to ask if you all have any last thoughts. And, and David, you too, because you've certainly studied this area uh, before we say goodbye. I'll leave it with that. I'll leave those. My, my last comment with Sally as, as, as my last thought and just really appreciate everyone kind of tuning in and being so supportive of, of the common good and, 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 and this conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you. We've hit the six o'clock mark, but do we have any last thoughts, David or, or Jing Jing or Santiago? I'll, I'll turn Santiago, Jing Jing, anything from you guys to close us out? No comments beyond young people do vote. Young people have a lot of political power. And if there is any young person in your life who is not already engaged in politics, please get them engaged. We need we need youth participation and young voters will make the difference in November. Yeah, 100%. Just to close out, I think um, so often Gen Z is stereotyped as being apathetic or extreme socialists that are just left wing and obsessed with Twitter and social media. And yet what we really see from the youth poll, from, from John and Santiago's work, from, from David's work, is how, how much young people care about each other and about the future of our country as a whole, all generations together. And we're excited to champion these causes and take the lead in cultivating that, that brighter future. Thank you guys. Thank you, John, Santiago, Jin Jing. I'm super inspired. I've got, I'll plug the book here. Everyone should go grab, grab a copy and encourage everyone. The fact that you're here trying to learn and, and, and understand the generation, it means, means a lot. So keep reading and learning. Um, and thank you, Patricia, for putting together another wonderful common good conversation. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it's, it's really important that we um, encourage your engagement as we do with all of our people at, at every generation. Um, and I just want to remind everybody, um, next week we've got a very important conversation on Ukraine again, uh, this time with Ambassador John Erbs, who, who represented Ukraine, Nina Khrushcheva, um, who's a Russian expert, a expert on Russia, but also the um, granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev. Um, and it will be moderated by Jane Harmon. Um, and we're gonna be talking about hate and extremism on May 4th with Jonathan Greenblatt and others. But 
you are all were so inspiring and so terrific. I really admire what you're doing, Santiago and Jing Jing. It's it's fantastic. David, you've been doing this for a long time. And John, uh, thank you for shining the light on, on what these young people are doing. Everybody really should buy this book. It's terrific. Thank you so much, everybody. Hope to see you next week. Bye.